Really lovely to uh, see so many of you here this morning. I appreciate, um, you know, you looked at a, a booklet of seminars and maybe you're here with a group of people or here with family and you kind of did that little thing where you sort of said, who's going to go to which seminar and we'll kind of, and you, you kind of ended up going, well, I'll go to the porn one. Uh, and I appreciate that might feel a bit weird or awkward or embarrassing. Um, and I don't know why you're here. Maybe you're here because uh, you've seen the impact of pornography in someone's life. Maybe a close friend or, or a relative and uh, you're trying to walk with them. Maybe you're here as someone who's involved in church leadership and you are beginning to see the way that porn is impacting your congregation in different ways and, and you're sort of saying, okay, I need wisdom here. How, how do I lead people in this situation? Uh, maybe you're here because actually you personally have struggled um, and, and you're kind of looking for maybe some practical help and we will not ask you that question, okay, in this seminar. So you don't need to be worried about that. There's no point where I'm going to say, okay, put your hands up if you're struggling with porn or anything like that. This is going to be a safe place. We're going to talk quite generally, but also uh, I'll kind of signpost some real specifics as well of where you can get help in, in different ways. Um, but before we, we go any further, let me say a little bit about myself, introduce myself. Uh, so as Tim says, my name's Ian, I live in Manchester um, with my gorgeous wife and two lovely girls who are 13 and 10. I appreciate that's a little bit of a cliche. I've yet to hear a sort of speaker get up and say, I've got an average wife and, you know, two really annoying kids who are quite ugly. Um, but I, I do have a great family. We've been living in Manchester now for about 17 years or so. Um, we actually moved there to be involved in something called the Eden Project, which is a kind of community mission and evangelism. Uh, we moved to this place called Harper Hay, which at the time was the most deprived ward in the UK. And, and we're still living there, trying to be church in, in that place. So I'll be honest with you, I wasn't really expecting five years ago to start a porn project. Um, you know, I've been involved in mission and evangelism for about 20 or so years. And that's very much has been and continues to be, but had been my, my heart and my calling. And as I say, five years ago, uh, started Naked Truth. Um, and Naked Truth is, uh, basically has an aim to open eyes and free lives from the damaging impact of pornography uh, in culture. And as I say, that was a bit of a surprise that I even began that journey. I didn't sit down with my careers advisor uh, when I was 14 at school. I don't know if you have careers advisors in Northern Ireland, but they kind of made you fill in a little questionnaire when we were 14. Who are you? Who do you want to be when you grow up was basically the idea. I did not have in any of my planning for my life, you know, porn as one of the things I wanted to think about, talk about or try to tackle. But particularly in the last decade or so, I think my definition and my understanding of pornography has changed massively. Um, if, 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 I, if I was honest, I think for most of my ministry, and as I said, I was involved in kind of different types of ministry, youth work, uh, working with young adults and, and then adults in different ways. I probably came across a few people that would say, I, I struggle with pornography. That, that was probably something I'd seen, maybe a bit of prayer ministry or something, it, it, might, it might come up. But it probably wasn't something that I saw as being this life I want to give my life to kind of cause, you know. It wasn't one of those, those kind of issues. It was just kind of something that some people struggle with sometimes. 
that was probably how I define pornography for most of my ministry and most of my life. Maybe that's actually how you'd define pornography. If you were honest, you would say, yeah, it's one of those things that some people struggle with sometimes. Uh, maybe, you know, alongside other addictions or alongside maybe other kind of pastoral problems. Um, but what it isn't is, you know, a huge challenge. I would, at this point in our time, beg to differ on that. I, I've slowly and perhaps reluctantly actually come, come to the conclusion that I think pornography is one of the greatest challenges our churches and our communities are facing. Now I realise that's a little bit of a kind of like, you know, visionary, I started a porn project kind of rhetoric, you know. Every kind of CEO or kind of founder that you meet will say, this one issue is the big issue. I appreciate that you can kind of see this through that filter. So I want, I want to kind of take you initially in our time together through some of the journey that I went on that, that led me to believing that this is such a crucial issue for our churches and how actually we cannot afford not to think about this and talk about this. Um, and then in the second half, I'm going to just give you some real practical things um, in terms of how you can walk with people, how you can help people, how you can uh, maybe uh, find some resources and things as well. So that's our, that's our plan for, for the next kind of 50 minutes that we've got left. Um, and um, let me just start, I guess, with a bit of a definition because uh, we're using this term pornography uh, and, it, and it can mean all sorts of different things to different people. Um, so, you know, is pornography, for example, nudity? Because if pornography is nudity, when I went to a gallery um, with my gran a couple of weeks ago and we saw a statue of, uh, you know, a naked woman that's about, you know, a thousand years old, uh, you know, coming out of some pool with a pot on her head, was I looking at porn with my gran? Was that going on right then? Um, or uh, if I'm in the gym and I'm on the treadmill and there's a pop video on and there's kind of MTV playing and there's some rapper there uh, and he's kind of doing his ting uh, and behind him he's got some women um, and maybe men as well or whatever and they're kind of dancing and they're twerking and they're fully dressed um, but actually probably much more sexualized than the, the new statue that I saw in the art gallery. You know, am I actually witnessing pornography whilst I'm having a, a, a jog? And so it's quite important, isn't it, that we even begin to decide what we mean when we say this word pornography. And there's loads of debate even about that, and we're not going to spend time on that. So to speed things up, I'm going to give you the definition that, that I guess I'm working with as I talk about this. Um, the Urban Dictionary, probably not the most helpful uh, of uh, definitions, um, but uh, probably how lots of people in our culture would view pornography. Uh, so you've got the best thing in the world, the reason you need a, a new hard drive, and peas and corn mixed together in a bowl, apparently. So, uh, but the Collins Dictionary, I think, is perhaps a, a, a helpful definition for us. And then dictionary.com has something quite similar. Uh, Collins says this, writings, pictures, 
films, etc., designed to stimulate sexual excitement. Writings, that's worth saying, isn't it? That there might not be one photo, there might not be one image, it might be something, it might just be the written word. Famously, Fifty Shades of Grey, that novel got called mummy porn by kind of mainstream culture. There, there wasn't a picture in sight, it was about what was written. Um, pictures can be more than photos, actually. Uh, am, am, sort of uh, ammy stuff and kind of a cartoon pornography is huge. It's a massive part of uh, a porn, actually. Um, obviously, films, photographs, those sort of things are maybe traditionally what we'd think about. Um, maybe even pixels is something we need to include in this definition too. You know, your Grand Theft Auto, where you might have, you know, the option to have sex with a prostitute in, in, as part of the open world of that game. You know, is, is that fitting into this category? Well, it all depends, actually, on whether those writings, pictures, pixels or films are designed to stimulate sexual excitement. So actually, the purpose behind it is important. You know, in the gallery with my gran, if the artist intended to stimulate me sexually when he had a, a you know, he created a nude, uh, then maybe it was pornographic, actually, even though I was there with my nan. Maybe it was, um, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's a celebration of the human body. Maybe it was all sorts of other things, but it wasn't trying to stimulate me sexually. Whereas perhaps the, the MTV video, where there is no nudity, but there is a desire to make you remember that video, remember that artist, and sell more stuff, maybe they were deliberately wanting to use sex to sell uh, and so actually it was pornographic. So you can see how our understanding of why is this being created is important in our definition when we talk about pornography. Um, so that's what we're going to kind of land on as we, as we kind of chat through things today. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I've noticed a lot sort of changed in the last 20 or so years. I'm, I'm 44 years old. No, really, stop it. I know. Um, but I am uh, 44 years old. And uh, so I, I relate to this picture now because uh, I kind of think, yeah, OK, the guy in the mirror, that's kind of what I, my memory tells me that I look like. The guy in front of the mirror is probably closer to what I actually look like. You know, I, I've kind of my body shape has changed drastically in the last 20 or so years. My wife, this is just a, and a little aside, by the way, but my wife read recently there are two things you can do to look thinner without having to diet. Are you interested? This has got nothing to do with the seminar topic. This is just free. I'm throwing this in. Do you want to know what those two things are? Yes, there you go. Right. Number one, you may have heard of before, which is to wear black because it's thinning, apparently, hence the uh, black top today. Uh, it's more thinning to wear black. The second thing uh, that is thinning is to move to America. You can give it a try. You can decide whether you think that's a good idea or not. But uh, that's what my wife read. Um, but it's not just my body that has changed in the last 20 years. The culture that we live in is, looks completely different. I remember, for example, Channel 4 being launched because uh, I'm of that generation. I remember going into the playground and saying to my mates, there's going to be four channels and that was mind-blowing i mean we could not imagine how they're going to come up with enough ideas to fill another whole channel uh, it seems crazy now when we have kind of 400 channels and of course we realize they didn't come up with any ideas they just kind of repeat the same stuff over and over again but on when they launched channel four they um 
they introduced this thing. And, and again, I don't know if any of you remember. Anyone remember this, the little red triangle? Some of you will be too young, but some of you may remember. The idea of the little red triangle was that uh, it was there to be a warning for parents, I think, mostly. So if this program had any kind of mature content, they would have a little red triangle in the corner of the screen during the whole program. But also, they'd put the little red triangle in maybe the TV guide or something like that. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, as a, a 14, 15-year-old boy, that little red triangle in the TV guide, it, it wasn't a warning. It was a red flag for the film that I had to somehow try and watch, you know. And, and so I have a few memories uh, in my teen years of uh, creeping down in the middle of the night. Everyone else has gone to bed, and I'm creeping down in the middle of the night to watch some film that's on Channel 4 at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was normally French. It was normally black and white. It normally had subtitles. Uh, and normally at some point, maybe an hour after I'm falling asleep with boredom as much as anything else, you know, a woman in that film would maybe take her, her bra off and that would be why there was a little red triangle. And, and for me, as a 15-year-old, that was my main exposure to some sort of kind of adult content. That was the main way I could get access to it anyway because back then, and some of you will remember this, if you wanted to find something pornographic, you had to pay for it. Uh, you had to go into a shop and take it off a magazine and take it to a counter and pay for it. And, and I couldn't do that. I didn't look 18. Or you would have videos. Remember videos? There's these things girls call videos. Uh, but they, you know, they would send videos through the post and they would be pornographic. Uh, but you needed a credit card to order that. And so if you weren't 18, you couldn't have a credit card. The internet changed all that. The internet was a game changer for people that wanted access to pornography and, of course, for the people that, that created pornography and make money from pornography. Uh, the internet quickly followed by its rather fatter brother, Broadband, and then 10 years ago to this year, in 2007, on a Californian stage, a man in a black roll-neck jumper, perhaps he too wanted to look thinner, called Steve Jobs, said, we are going to reinvent the phone and he brought out this thing that no one had heard of before called the iPhone. And that changed everything because now the internet moved from our desktops into our back pockets. And porn, amongst a load of other great things that the internet offered, suddenly was more accessible than ever. And you didn't need to look 18, you just had to tick a little box on a website that said, yes, I'm over 18, honest, governor. Uh, and so actually not just young people but adults too uh, found themselves with exposure and access to something that hadn't been there before really. Um, it's now more accessible, more anonymous, more affordable and potentially more addictive than ever before because of that shift in the way it was distributed. And that's happened in 10 years. So we have to think it's not the same as it was when we were younger for some of us sitting here today. We have to recognize there's been a change, there's been a shift. Um, one website in 2016 reported that they had 23 billion hits in that one year. So one website, 23 billion hits. This is a porn site. Uh, so that is the same as 1.9 billion in a month, which, by the way, is seven times more than the BBC iPlayer gets in a month. Uh, that's the same as 64 million a day, 
which is double what YouTube's 30 million a day hits are. Uh, and uh, also, if uh, that means um, in 2016, they're 4.6 billion hours of video were watched, okay? That's how much was actually watched on this one website, which if you were an individual and you sat down and you watched 4.6 billion hours of video, that would take you half a million years to do. We're talking about a lot of pornography. One website. One website. So what we can't do is start saying, oh yeah, pornography is just something that some people, you know, a slightly strange people, you know those men in dirty Macs who hang around outside adult shops in the dodgy parts of town, they're the porn users. It's not those people anymore, well not just those people anymore. Now a porn user isn't someone in a dirty Mac, now a porn user is someone who owns a product made by Mac or Samsung. That's the change that's happened. And that means more people than ever are accessing it more frequently. Uh, another statistic, 79% of men and 76% of women aged 18 to 30 uh, watch porn at least once a month. Uh, our young people, as I said before, now have access that perhaps they didn't have before because it was uh, difficult to get hold of. Now it's easy to get hold of. So 94% of a uh, thousand teens said that they'd seen porn by 14. One in three 10 year olds uh, have seen porn online. There's two different surveys there. That top one was actually a report that uh, an MP um, published uh, at the end of last year. She also said this, she said um, when she did this report, she had one teenage boy put his hand up as they were kind of doing the surveys and the questions and that sort of stuff. And he said this, he said, if I wanna have sex with my girlfriend, do I have to strangle her? That's what he said. And for the MP who released this report called Dare to Care, it, it was that moment that made her realize the way that porn was not only being accessed in, in huge numbers by teenagers, but actually it was the nature of what was being accessed that has changed so much. It's no longer a French woman just taking her bra off. Uh, it's actually quite deeply dark stuff that is accessible. Another MP, Claire Perry, put it like this. She said, what is illegal to buy from a sex shop because of regulations uh, that we have in our laws at the moment is served up every day uh, for free on an unregulated uh, uh, um, website. And so we start to see that change as well. A couple of statistics that, that back that up. Um, this group of... Um, late teens this was, but a group of boys, 32% of boys, 18% of girls said they'd seen bestiality online. 88% of the top selling uh, pornography was um, examined and analysed. Uh, sorry, of, of all the top selling um, content that was um, analysed, 88% contained physical aggression of some kind. 56% of men said that their taste in porn had changed and had become increasingly extreme or deviant. Um, so what you're seeing here is that the nature of what is being accessed is, is changing as well. It's not just about how much it is. Those 56% of men um, said that that change was causing problems in their everyday relationships because they were saying the things that 
are turning me on that I'm watching, I wouldn't want to do in real life with a real person. So that's starting to impact my real relationships. That fake world is seeping into my real world. Uh, and we see that in other ways as well. Um, an association of uh, lawyers um, did a survey of all their divorce cases and analyzed all their divorce cases. And 56% of those divorce cases cited uh, obsessive um, and compulsive porn use as a key factor in the breakdown of the relationship. So again, we're seeing how that's affecting marriages um, and, and partners of um, porn users. One in three visitors to porn sites are female. I don't know if that surprises you, but that's... that's um, uh, we know that because of the way that the internet works. We can see who visits what websites, whether they're male or female, where they live in the country, all that stuff, stuff that we couldn't measure very easily now. Now because of analytics we can and so that's how we know that one in three are female. And then what about the church? Well, 41% of Christian men in a survey that our Premier Media did, uh, 41% admitted to being addicted to pornography. That's a really strong term to use. But they admitted to being addicted to pornography, 41%. So we can't say this is something that some people struggle with sometimes when you have 41% in the church saying something like that. 93% of church leaders said that porn is a bigger problem than ever before in their churches. They're seeing it, they're seeing it every day pastorally, the change that's happened. But only 7% of churches, according to Covenant Eyes, so this would be in the States, it's probably not even as high as this over here in the UK, 7% of churches have programs to help those struggling with porn. So we have a huge percentage struggling and a very small percentage of churches knowing what to do or, or whether they should even do anything to help. And so that's what we want to see a change in, isn't it? Um, and that's impacting the way we see things and maybe one of the biggest changes that 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 whole shift that I've just unpacked for you has had is that porn is now just seen as normal by so many people I want to just show you a little video this was taken from a BBC documentary that was released a couple of years ago and here you just have young adults who probably most of their lives certainly their teenage lives they grew up with this kind of um, any any time anywhere access to pornography talking about the impact that has on them so we're just going to watch that together now the first time i watched porn i think i was 13. i think when i was about 12. maybe 13 14. 15. i was about 11. probably about See? 12. Yeah. 12. Yeah. yeah i was probably about 10 maybe <laughs> <laughs> i know i have loads of friends that watch porn for pleasure of course i liked it something new it's really easy it's really easy to just... find porn now just type into google whatever you like I think I was shocked at first because I had never seen anything explicit before. We'd never seen sex. All my friends watch it and talk about it and that's been since I was 11. I think everyone I've dated has watched porn. Like we're in a generation now where it is normal, porn is normal and every, everyone watches it. I think like watching porn does become a part of like sex education for younger, for the younger generation yeah. more so. My personal experience, I definitely, definitely learned a lot from porn. It's like a manual. Watching porn is like a manual, I suppose. That's the whole point of it, really, to then take that video and then, you know, do it on a bird. That's, that's the aim. I think guys are thinking they're learning, but they're learning about sex watching porn. At least once a day, at least. There was a stage where I was three times a day, really, three, four times a day. Three to four times a week, I'd say. At least once a week, I guess, or something like that. That's news to me. 
<laughs> I was addicted to it when I first got into it. Like, I come home from school, put porn on. From there, more porn. That's it, it just escalated. Okay, so a lot of figures and facts stuff being thrown out at you. Just, just take a break for a minute and maybe find someone nearby. And um, I'd like you just to have a conversation. Has anything I've just told you been a surprise or a shock to you? Or as you've heard those stats or even those voices uh, from just everyday people in the street, um, you've kind of gone, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, I, I'm not at all surprised by that. But it'd just be interesting to see whether for you some of this is a surprise or a shock because it was for me it was a sh when I started to understand this and as I say my definition started to change from porn being something that some people struggle with sometimes to it actually being one of the big challenges that we're about to face as a church uh, it, some of this was a shock to me so have a conversation uh, just for a few moments and then we're going to hear some stories from some people uh, that porn has been impacting but talk to each other first what has surprised or shocked you if anything Truth is that um, behind every statistic, there's always a story. Behind those facts, there are always faces. And I wanted you to get an experience of some of that as well. going to show you. It's um, uh, a video that a friend of mine made. He kind of made it and just kind of sent it on his phone and just sort of emailed it to me. So it's not kind of like some polished kind of production. It's just very raw and very real. But it's uh, his, his true story. So we're just going to uh, watch this together. My first exposure to porn was age 12 when my dad started buying copies of the Sun newspaper. Slowly pictures of scantily clad women became the norm, culturally acceptable almost, and I became fixated. It wasn't too long before I started buying copies of my own newspapers and magazines, freely buying copies of the Sunday Sport and things like that at the local newsagents. More mature mags soon followed, and at the age of 15, I vividly remember being able to buy a copy of Loaded magazine, which was entitled The Sex Edition, and was just draped cover to cover full of images of completely naked women. By 16, I was watching porn regularly online. At first, it started off with what you'd call normal sex scenes. But the problem with porn is that it's insatiable. What gives you a kick and satisfies your craving one day won't when you return to it the next. It wasn't too long before my insatiable appetite led me down darker paths and I began watching more graphic, deranged sexual acts in order to get the same fix. I'd see violent acts on the brink of rape, groups of guys with one girl. It didn't really matter to me at all as long as it satisfied my craving, I was happy, but the satisfaction never lasted for long. Over the next six years, I watched literally thousands and thousands of videos online, a secret habit that quickly began to have an incredibly poisonous effect on the rest of my life. Porn had an incredibly derogatory impact on the way that I viewed every member of the opposite sex. Videos portrayed women to be objects whose role was to be used, controlled and dominated by men. I quickly began to view girls around me at school as acquisitions to be had and stopped seeing them as human beings. At the age of 17, I had my 
first serious sexual relationship. But sex wasn't to me wasn't about intimacy or affection. I saw it as an opportunity to play out what I'd seen on the screen and it was all about my pleasure, not theirs. I couldn't help but compare my girlfriend to the images of the woman that I saw on screen and when she didn't match up to my impossibly high standards I was left feeling disappointed. This led to periods of impotency at the age of just 17. As well as the negative impact on the way that I looked at other women, porn also had a negative impact on my sense of self. I was 14 when I realised I was never going to match up to the bulked up men with 12 inch penises that I saw on the screen. I developed an intense shame about my height and the size of my manhood and this triggered an anxiety that made my day-to-day -day life unbearable right the way through university. At the age of 24, I hit rock bottom. I'd given up hope of ever finding love and believed that relationships were just meaningless. Feeling desperately alone and depressed, it was then that I turned to my local church. And it was there that I met a group of people who were completely accepting of me, warts and all. They showed me that true love exists when I'd become cynical about ever finding it and gave me reason to hope when I'd all but lost it. I started to look back on my life and saw the hollowness of devaluing people. I realised that sex is something supremely precious that's to be shared between two people in a committed, intimate relationship. It's now been over three years since I've watched porn, but it's been an incredibly hard fight to break free from it. Images are incredibly powerful and the violent and sexual scenes that I watched still haunt me to this very day. Day by day I have to renew my mind, challenging the destructive ways that I become accustomed to looking at the opposite sex and myself. I still some, sometimes struggle to be completely satisfied with my body but slowly but surely I'm breaking free from the lies. I want to tell this generation that porn is not just harmless fun. It hurts in more ways than people realise and can do untold damage. It's not just um, stories like that that I hear all the time from men and women uh, of all generations, actually. You know, lots of guys in their 40s and 50s similar kind of stories and and one of the things that's been interesting as i've talked to some of those is they say i never really struggled with porn as as a 20 something i could probably trace it back though to when i got my first smartphone um and that happened in my 30s or my 40s and and so actually this isn't something that's just an issue that young people are facing or young adults uh, or men uh, it's it's men and women, it's young and old, and it's churched and unchurched. He started um, his porn problem as a non-Christian. And actually, as well as this being one of the greatest challenges that the church is facing right now, I think this is one of the greatest opportunities we have of actually bringing life and hope and help uh, and healing to, to people like my friend who had reached that point of going, I'm, I'm lost, I'm harassed and helpless 
like a sheep without a shepherd, is what Luke says. So um, you have people like this, but also you have the people on the other side of the screen as well. And I want to just share one more story with you before we start looking at some of the practical things we can do. Um, this is, um, again, a recording of a, a, from a porn reporter that um, an organization in the States called Fight the New Drug, who I'll be mentioning a couple of times today, do a lot of work around awareness and, and help for young people in particular, and certainly worth looking into. Um, but they, they released this video, an interview they um, had with a woman who was a performer, and she just talks a little bit about what life is like for her, Maybe not for everyone, but certainly for many, um, but on the other side of the computer screen. I speak from experience to say that there are victims and survivors who have been drugged and forced into this ugliness against their wills. I realize that this statement um, flies in the face of the mainstream, monothought, stereotypical mentality, that porn is something... Um, that women choose or uh, that she likes it, she asked for it, she chose it. Although that might be true for uh, some, many are coerced into agreeing with whatever our pornographer says just to stay alive. You know, I was drugged before each filming. Sometimes it was uh, with an amnesiac, uh, sometimes with a, a paralyzing drug, uh, Sometimes with pain blockers. Sometimes it's a crazy combination of, of all of them. We lie to cover up the truth. We do not have the words to speak out because our, our pain is, is too graphic and it's next to impossible to describe what happened to us. We're met with dismissals and denials. I'm here to tell you, some of us have succumbed to more drug addictions, some to insanity, some to crippling isolation, and some even to death. Um, truth is that uh, we cannot see porn as just a bit of harmless fun or just even something that some people struggle with sometimes. This is a huge pastoral issue. For us that, that care about people, this is a huge justice issue when you hear uh, stories like this. Um, and, and actually what we're learning more and more um, is the way that porn is impacting the brain. And there's a load of science around that. Um, that actually it, it has a, a similar impact to kind of uh, substance drugs in the way that the brain uh, builds up a tolerance and, and potentially an addiction. And you heard a little bit about that even in um, my friend's story, how it impacts relationships, um, often uh, with partners feeling like you know there's something wrong with them and porn users feeling like they they can't love properly uh, and relationships get ripped apart as a result we see how it impacts people's faith so many men and women in our churches feeling like they're not proper christians because they struggle with this feel they can't get involved in ministry can't get involved in helping out can't step up and step out because actually they would they would be hypocrites if they did um and they're feel disconnected from their heavenly father but also from their christian community because of this hidden thing that's going on in their world 
and also it's impacting our world and 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 our our young people and the generation that's that young people are growing up in and we've seen some of that the 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 people who are being used for the sake of profit um and to satisfy a demand all all these things mean that this is a huge huge issue um We've already mentioned that uh, next uh, October or October coming, uh, we're partnering with uh, CARE to do this event. We will be able to talk a lot more about all these things at that event. We've got a whole list of different speakers. Uh, we'll have stuff about how to parent through this issue. We'll have stuff about how to kind of walk with partners. We'll have stuff about how to, as church leaders, uh, tackle this issue one-on-one -on -one, uh, with people as well. The, the event is aimed at those in leadership of any kind. So if you're a small group leader or you're a church leader, uh, then we're really aiming this at you. But if you just want to come along just to learn more, understand more and get some practical help uh, for whatever reason, we'd encourage you to be there. So we, I can only briefly go through some of the things that we will go into much more depth on uh, during that day. And so I just want to highlight that day for you as well. But in the time that we've got, I do want to kind of say... Um, some of the stuff that, that we can do, some of the ways that we can respond and how scripture actually can guide us in some of that response too. Um, one of the first things I'd just say is um, it's well worth just taking a look at our website. We've got kind of a device page on there with lots of websites, lots of books, lots of kind of signposting to different things. Uh, all the things I'll mention today, some of the groups we run, some of the programs we run, you can all get to those things via the website. So that's probably a good starting point. Uh, so Naked Truth Project, a lot of the things I'm going to mention now, you'll, you'll be able to find out more about as, as we go through. Um, so I wanted to spend some time, our last kind of uh, bit of time together, uh, first of all, ask, answering this question, I suppose. How can we bring hope, help and healing to people who are struggling uh, with porn? And uh, maybe you want to do that as a friend. Maybe you want to do that as, as a leader of some kind. Um, maybe you just want to find that for yourself. Um, and so um, we're going to look at a piece of scripture together about two twins uh, who were very, very different. Not like uh, Danny and Arnie here, but, um, but two twins you will know very well, probably Jacob and Esau. You know maybe that Esau was this uh, you know, big, strong, hairy twin who was very outdoorsy, very rugged, you know, uh, bear grills for the Old Testament. Uh, and then you had... Um, a Jacob who seemed to be a little bit more kind of homely. Uh, perhaps if he was around today, he would use hair product and, and you know, wear skinny jeans and he'd probably be a worship leader or something. Uh, so, so you've got these kind of two kinds of guys, a bit different in their personalities, but, but brothers. And uh, actually, there's a story about these two that um, I often use to try and help me understand a little bit about how we can help people. Um, and so there's a scripture framework that we're going to use. Um, and the story is the famous story of um, Esau coming out of the fields, it says, uh, in, um, in Genesis 27. He says he comes out of the fields and he goes into the mess tent and he's been hunting all day and he seems to be empty handed because uh, he's not got anything with him. And he's famished. He's hungry. And he sees his brothers cooking up a stew. And he says, please, just give me some of that stew. And his brother, who sees that his, his older brother is vulnerable, uh, uses that to leverage uh, a profit. 
uh, remember that. Uh, and uh, he says, sure, you can have some of this stew. I just want your birthright. You know the story. Uh, and so Esau's response is interesting. He says this, what good is my birthright? I'm going to die if I don't have some of this stew. And so they make what seems like the most ridiculous trade in history. And Esau trades his birthright for some broth, his future for some food. Um, And we can read the story, and perhaps you have, and you've kind of looked at Esau and you've thought, what an idiot. Why would you do that? Who would do that, in fact? Who would give up something that's obviously so valuable? Because the birthright was a valuable thing. It it meant, for example, that with the birthright, you had two-thirds of the future inheritance uh, their father would give them. So the inheritance would be split in three rather than two, and you would get two-thirds. It also meant that you would have a, a reputation and authority in the household. You would be uh, the one who would head up the household and also it meant that there was a favor they believed that God gave you so there's this is kind of about money it's about reputation it's even about spirituality and it's all really important but here's the thing it's all about stuff that will happen at some point and so what happens here is Esau trades something that is extremely valuable but not yet for something that is immediate Uh, but very transitory. It will be over very soon. Um, And so, again, we might look and say, why would you do that? Except we have to be honest with ourselves and say, actually, we do this a lot. We do this a lot. It just depends what your stew is. You know, for some people, it's, it's maybe their stew is ambition. And I know many people who will trade things they value like family and marriage and time, quality time with their kids so that they can get maybe the salary bump or, or the title that they're chasing at work and they make a trade. Maybe uh, it's another appetite, another thing that you desire. For my dad, his stew was pornography. And uh, 10 years ago, uh, my, my dad was arrested for having indecent images of children on his computer at work. He was a Christian leader. He was a CEO of a Christian charity. Uh, and he lost it all, actually. He lost so, so much because over time he had, he'd made this trade. Now, for my dad, actually, I think for a lot of the time, uh, the stuff he was accessing was the same mainstream material that we've been talking about. Um, and right towards the end, it spiraled and spiraled and spiraled to him then having that awful, terrible and illegal material that was found on his computer. But for probably decades, he'd just hidden mainstream porn use and regularly traded the things that he really cared about. His ministry, his marriage, his future, his family to satisfy an appetite that was deep within him. And so I know that this happens. And so how can we learn from Esau's mistake to try and help others not make the same mistakes? And so there's a couple of things that we're going to talk about and I'm going to point you towards. Um, But if you were kind of wanting to try and walk with someone or even help yourself, these are some two really important hooks that we learn from the story uh, and actually that we learn from counseling and therapy too. You would find these these hooks in in those um, disciplines as well. To take control of our appetites, there's two things that we can do. We need to understand when we are vulnerable 
and we need to understand what is valuable. Um, the first, then, is to understand um, when you are vulnerable. You see, for Esau, he came home from the hunt empty-handed. In other words, he had a bad day at the office. He was emotionally vulnerable. Uh, and maybe when you have a bad day at work, you might reach for an extra bar of chocolate that night than you perhaps thought you were going to have, or maybe a glass of wine that's a little bit bigger, um, or it's a Tuesday night instead of a Friday night. But it's how you're dealing with your bad day. Because actually, when we have stuff happen to us emotionally, we look for things to self-soothe. We look for things to try and help. And that was the situation Esau was in. And those that struggle with porn, often that's the situation they're in. Actually, they're not looking at porn because they feel, uh, you know, um, sexually aroused. They're actually, they've had a, they're dealing with something emotionally, whether they're lonely, whether they're bored, whether they've had an argument with their partner, whether they've had a bad exam result, whether they've had a bad day at the office. And porn becomes the thing they use just to feel a bit better about themselves and about their day and what's going on. So they are emotionally vulnerable. But also we can have um, environmental uh, vulnerabilities too that can act as triggers too. So those emotions can be triggers that lead us to using pornography. Um, but also environments can do that as well. For Esau, he walks into a tent and he is hit. His senses are engaged because he now sees and smells some amazing stew. And so he's put himself in, a, in, in an environment that has now made him just go, I've got to eat that. And actually that's true as well when it comes to porn use, that there are environments where we are more vulnerable. Maybe for some people it will be being on their own downstairs when their wife has gone to bed at night and they're now left with the remote control in their hand uh, and episodes of Game of Thrones to catch up on. Maybe uh, for someone else it's, uh, it is being in the gym with MTV blaring. Maybe for someone else, it's having their phone in their bedroom at night. Uh, and there can be these different environments, actually, that grab... Our, those environments often grab our attention and entice us and pull us in, and that we have to kind of find ways of trying to avoid those environments when we can. Um, and so part of the way that we take control is by knowing when we're vulnerable and then doing what we can to avoid that stuff or having a plan for when we have that emotional trigger, we know what to do about it so that we don't turn to porn as our option, but we've found other things that we can do in our life that will help us when we're struggling, whether that's some sport or a thing that we love doing, and a hobby, or even just talking to someone. But the key is we spotted the trigger before we got to the point where we're already kind of logging on to uh, you know, something we don't want to be logging on to. And so the identifying it is a really important part of the process, actually. You know, you wonder if you could have just got in a DeLorean and went back in time and landed outside that tent before Esau walked in and said, mate, I can tell you've had a bad day. This is not the place you want to be. Let's do something else instead. In fact, why don't we go to your father's tent? Because he thinks you're awesome. He'll probably just sit the whole time just bragging on you. So why don't we go and spend some time with him? Uh, because actually the other part of this is to uh, kind of know um, 
what's valuable, but I've forgotten this little bit, so I'll mention this as well. Uh, the other thing you see inside Esau's uh, kind of process here is that distorted thinking that takes place, uh, where he says this, doesn't he? He says, I'll die if I don't have some of that stew. That is complete rubbish. You know, no, you're not going to die, Esau. You're just going to feel a bit hungry for a while. But actually, I identify with that. I identify with the fact that when my brain locks into something, suddenly that thing is sort of magnified in its impact. But also the consequences of it are often minimized as well. Uh, Sometimes I will kind of, uh, you know, just tell myself that only this is the thing that's going to make me feel better. Uh, Sometimes I'll uh, have other types of distorted thinking. Here's a list of some of the distorted thinking that can happen. So for Esau, it was this magnification. It was like, uh, you know, only I'm going to die. You know, only this is going to help me right now. Um, But maybe it's denial. Maybe it can just be like, it's not a big thing. It's not a big deal. It's not a big problem. Maybe it's justification. Uh, Maybe it's minimization. Maybe it's just like, I'm only looking at a few things. It's not too bad. Maybe it's blame. If my wife listened to me, maybe if we had sex more often, I wouldn't have to go on this. Or if my husband was actually, you know, paid me some attention, maybe I wouldn't find myself looking at these things. Sometimes it's comparison. Maybe it's comparison like, you know, when you're driving along on the motorway and you're going at like 75 uh, and, uh, you know, you're breaking the law, but then someone overtakes you at about 100 in the other lane, and you kind of then go, well, at least I'm not going as fast as them. Uh, and that kind of makes it okay somehow for you. Uh, this happens too, doesn't it, in another way that we go, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm, j- I'm just looking at this stuff, but I know people who are looking at this stuff. All of this actually is distorted thinking. It's warped thinking. It's, it's actually, we're not telling ourselves the truth anymore. We've got to a place where we're kind of just believing uh, a script that we run often time and time and time again. Um, So when we uh, think about this second thing of understanding what is valuable, valuable, here are some questions you can begin to think through and talk to people. What am I called to? Who am I committed to? What are the costs? I remember talking to a church leader who um, was talking to me about the fact he was using porn uh, and he said he'd start to use it every now and then when he was on his own in the church office. Uh, and I kind of said to him, because he was on the team, but he wasn't the senior leader, I said, if your boss found out about that, what would happen? And he said, I don't know, I genuinely don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if I lost my job. That would be, you know, in the staff handbook, that would be constituted as a misconduct, gross misconduct. I said, okay, so if that happened, you lost your job, then, then you're going to have to tell your wife, right? Because she doesn't know. Yeah, of course I would. And your kids are going to start asking you, why don't you work at church anymore, Dad? Yeah, 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 I guess, I guess they would. And, and he, uh, as we began to talk about it, started to even just think through what was at risk, in fact. Because I think one of the problems that we can have, and one of the things that, that people who, who struggle with porn um, will have is this kind of thing of short-termism where we just see the thing that we want to do. We just see today or tomorrow and we don't think through what could go wrong. That Esau was not doing that. In fact, the Bible puts it like this. It says he despised his birthright. It wasn't that he didn't even just think about it. It was like he just totally disregarded it. He didn't care. 
He despised it because it was this thing that was over there and he wanted something here. So even helping people to think about whether it positively and negatively what's in the future, what is valuable, is part of their process. Because if they start to think about their family uh, or their calling uh, or whatever it is, that actually forces them to begin to think bigger, thinking past tomorrow. And that's really important. But then you can help people put things in their lives that will be a reminder of that. So I have a picture on my phone every time I kind of just click on my phone there's a picture of me and my kids on my phone and that's there for a reason not just because I you know most people will have a nice cheesy picture on their phone but partly because I I want a constant constant reminder of the things that matter to me the things that are valuable to me the things that I stand to lose actually if I do something I wouldn't want to do on that phone and that phone is a is a vulnerable thing um, for all of us and so what I'm saying is I want to put things that remind me of what is valuable. I'm going to show you a quick little video as we start to draw to a close now um, that highlights some of these things. You'd be able to show this video in your church, for example, as a way of trying to help people think through some of the things we've just discussed. Let's uh, watch this together. Throughout history, different cultures have told stories with warnings and wisdom for living life. These are sirens. Mythical creatures with songs so captivating that passing ships would change course towards them and end up shipwrecked, losing crew and cargo, or else making it to shore and being killed by the sirens, whose bite was worse than their bark, as it turns out. Enter Ulysses and the not-so-mystically named Jason, two characters who avoided the siren snare. Ulysses' plan was twofold. First, he made his crew block their ears with beeswax so they couldn't hear the music. Secondly, they were ordered to tie him to the mast so he physically couldn't change course. They were to stop him even if he begged to be released. Jason, on the other hand, hired Orpheus, the greatest musician in Greece. The plan? Simple. Orpheus played a much sweeter song and it drowned out the siren's music. Throughout history and the arts, Sirens became the personification of sexual temptation, a parable of the dangerous enticements leading to regrettable decisions, broken relationships, and shipwrecked lives. A few thousand years later, and pornography is more accessible than ever, with the same deadly pull as a siren song. So, here's three things we learn from Ulysses and Jason. Step one, avoid what you can. If you want to avoid pornography's pull, ask yourself when and where you are most vulnerable and where you can plan to avoid it. For example, going to bed at the same time as your partner might help to avoid the temptation of late night surfing. Place a filter on your computer or disable some apps or the browser on your phone. It works better than beeswax. Step two, ask others to help. Who are your companions? Who will say it like it is and keep you restrained even if you wish they didn't? Who can you trust to keep you on course? You need those kinds of people. Step three, pursue the better song. Family, faith, friendships. What are the things that you love in life that have value and depth? How can you pursue these more? Make a list, surround yourself with pictures of them. Carve out time, spend some money, make some choices but do all that you can to pursue 
the better song. So uh, that's a video we kind of made. Uh, we deliberately use actually the story of sirens because we have lots of non-Christians who kind of uh, use uh, this program, Click to Kick, as well. Uh, and so our kind of first thing is we kind of wanted them to recognize they could they could access this. And there is, uh, you know, it's run by Christians, but it's actually totally accessible to unchurched people. And also worth saying, I'm I that story of the sirens, the sirens were not women. They were these kind of mythical bird like creatures, actually. So in no way do I think women are the problem here, uh, you know, kind of tempting these poor, innocent men into their. their that is that's not how I see this at all. Um, and uh, but actually, if the sirens are anything, it's the porn industry. It's the profiteers. It's the people who will use men and women to to ensnare and trap people for their own gain. Um, that's that's if the sirens are anyone, it's that. But but um, click to kick is a fantastic way that somebody can get confidential help. Um, you access it online, so you access it through uh, video conferencing software. So we basically will do a little an assessment of someone to see how serious the issue is, um, and they have a, a kind of conversation around that with one of our team. And then you're put in a in a group, and then that group meets eight times uh, online. And so you see the other people in the group, and that group then becomes actually uh, the group that will pray for you, that will kind of be accountability for you, um, and uh, actually beyond the course, once the course is finished, that group continues to be a support. Now for lots of people who are just too scared to go and talk to their church leader and say, I need help with this, we have found that this has been the brilliant first step because they can sit in their car at lunchtime and join a group on their phone uh, and maybe no one else in their community even knows that they're part of this group. Part of the journey is actually we want them to be able to start to talk to people in their community and find friends near them and, and people near them who can walk and pray with them. But actually, for the first step, having something that's totally confidential can really help. And I really love the fact as well that the technology that makes porn accessible and anonymous for people is the same technology that can actually make help accessible and anonymous for people. Uh, and so, so we're really wanting to maximize that. Um, one, of the, one of the things that... Uh, I also want to just briefly mention, because uh, time has definitely run ahead of us, is um, the impact that, that porn has on the partner as well as the porn user. Um, we, probably about six months ago, started a, a secret Facebook group uh, for partners of our click to kick groups. Now we have about 80 or so, most of which have just sort of found us online, actually, and not necessarily partners of our, of our courses. Um, this is some of the things that partners have said. I feel so ashamed. That's why I haven't been able to tell the people closest to me. I had convinced myself that I was doing it to protect him, but that's not it. I'm embarrassed by what people will say and think. I feel immense shame about having a failed marriage or one that is struggling so much. We find loads of partners are struggling hugely and totally isolated and totally keeping it to themselves sometimes actually because that's what they've been advised to do maybe they've met with a church leader and the church leader has said hey don't talk to anyone about this because your husband is is going through this and doesn't want anyone else to know which kind of makes sense as advice apart from the fact it means that person just feels completely cut off 
And so what we've, we've found in this group is, is an opportunity for partners to find hope and help. Um, let me read one, one kind of um, comment from one of the people in the group. This group has been my lifeline during one of the most traumatic times I've ever experienced. The love, support, sharing and caring has been paramount to my recovery as well as my husband. Helping me to understand my situation and his has definitely speeded up the recovery process. The generosity and support of each and every wife is unbelievable. Even in their darkest hour, they reach out to hold and support each other. I would not be where I am today without this group. What we're just finding, even in just women at the moment, although we're going to begin to do stuff with male partners too, uh, just finding a group of people saying, I get it. I'm going through it too. You're not crazy. It's not your fault. You're not alone. Uh, has just been so, so powerful for those women. And, and so again, for that group to be Christians and non-Christians and for people to be sharing the difference that God is making in that context for them has, has been a great witness to those that don't know Jesus yet. Um, and what we're seeing in that is that actually more and more uh, where people have given up and they thought there isn't an answer and there isn't hope, that actually they're finding that, and that's, that's beautiful. Now, there's, there's so many different things that um, I wanted to share with you today, and I probably spent a little too long at the beginning trying to unpack the problem, um, but as I said, we will go into so much more detail at the P Word conference, so I'd really want to encourage you, if you can, to get yourself along to that. It's going to be such a significant day where we'll have loads of time to go into detail. Um, if you are a parent and you came here today, I know that Catherine Hill, who's going to be part of the conference, and she'll be sharing some stuff parenting-wise. Um, I know she did a seminar yesterday around the whole thing of how do you help your kids grow up in this changing thing, and, and apps and Snapchat and pornography, I know, are part of what she talks about often. Um, so, uh, But if you're a parent, let me kind of recommend one website uh, that you could look at, which is that Fight the New Drug website. It's actually written for young people, uh, but for you as a parent to understand is a really good place to start. Also, another good one for parents would be intimatmatters.org. All those things are on our website. So if you go to the Naked Truth website, you'll find stuff about Click to Kick. You'll find stuff about the partners groups and some of the stuff we do for parents. But coming to the P word would make a big, big difference. Also, can you pray for us just as I finish now um, as Naked Truth? We're wanting to start a, an office here in, in Ireland. We've been doing some stuff over the years here and, and we've got a, a fantastic person that we think we'll be able to take on. We're just in that process of trying to find and raise the funding for that uh, so that we can maybe start that in the autumn. And so please can you just pray because that's how we really want to support you guys here is by having a team here who will be able to walk alongside you and help you in some of the this stuff that we're doing. Um, I'm just going to pray for you if that's okay as we finish. Remind you that Maggie, is, Maggie I think, is uh, over here. She'd love to pray with you. Perhaps if you're a female and you just like some support, uh, she, I know she'd love to do that. Um, myself, Tim, and uh, two Tims, we'd love to pray with you as well. Please don't rush off. If you've got questions, please feel free to ask, but I also want to honor the fact that I'm about five minutes over. So let's just pray. Father God, we see before us maybe an issue that, that uh, is so new, actually, in so many ways. It's an old enemy, but it has new weapons. And uh, we perhaps struggle to fully understand the implications of all that. 
but we want to be people that don't just ignore the stuff we don't fully understand. We want to be a people that, that talk about it and tackle it. And so I pray for every person here who is sitting here because they recognize something needs to be done. I pray you will equip them, you will uh, help them, you'll inform them, uh, that you'll put a passion in them to pursue more and find out more. Um, and for those, Lord, that are struggling themselves or, or know those that are struggling and are seeking hope and practical help, thank you, Jesus, that our, I know our programs can help, but only you can heal. And so, Lord, I pray most of all you'll bring healing, that as we heard this morning, you will breathe life into dry bones, that you will bring transformation and, and a resurrection, maybe, uh, of lives that feel dry and hopeless. But also, Lord God, I pray you will bring that, that practical support and those answers uh, that people are looking for. Uh, so if people are struggling, I pray today they will know there's hope, but also you will give them uh, that help and healing they need to. Thank you, Lord. Amen.